That Naturopathic Podcast. TNP. Hello there. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Cara Denisio. And I'm Dr. David Miller, and we hear your frustrations. This show is for you. This show is for you if you're feeling like your current healthcare strategy is not getting to the root cause or the underlying reasons for your health. This show is for you if you've been told that you're fine, but you definitely don't feel very well. This show is for you if you're walking out of your doctor's office with one, two, three, four, or even five medications without any mention of diet, lifestyle, or a long-term game plan. This show is for you if you've got several specialists taking care of you, but no one is really putting it all together. This show is for you if you believe that health should be part of health care. These problems have solutions. We know it. Our patients know it. And we want you to know it. Naturopathic medicine is the solution that you need to know about. All right. Welcome to another episode of that naturopathic podcast. This is Dr. Kara. And this is Dr. Dave. All right. And today we're joined by Dr. Cindy Gilbert. And today we're talking about um, making clinical practice and healthcare more inclusive. Uh, She's got a great course coming up called Queering Wellness and another one for health practitioners called Trans Primary Care for Naturopathic Doctors. And we're really excited to open up this conversation today. Dr. Dave, do you want to more formally introduce Dr. Cindy? Yeah, Yeah, sure. So Dr. Cindy Gilbert, ND, is a naturopathic doctor, author, and faculty member at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, where Kara and I went. Uh, She has over 12 years of experience working with patients from marginalized and or vulnerable populations, including indigenous and racialized communities, people who are homeless or street involved, people living with complex mental health issues, people who use drugs, people living with disabilities, 2SLGBTQIA plus communities, I got that, I think, and people living in poverty. Um, Cindy also facilitates uh, cultural competency training for NDs as well as providing curriculum and policy guidance to naturopathic doctors and private clinics. So super inclusive. Um, We're going to learn about the alphabet soup today. You love all the peoples, Cindy. (laughs) I work with all the peoples. Thanks so much for having me on. And I'm so glad, Dr. Dave, you, you, you spelt out the alphabet soup properly. And so I think it's like probably the best place for us to start is to go through what all of that means. I think so, because we were chatting a little bit before pressing the record button um, that, you know, I think a lot of people are, you know, want to learn and have great intentions and maybe just don't know where to start. So who better to kind of walk us through that alphabet than kind of just starting with the basics? Yeah. And I think it like, like you said, it's really important right from the get go for us to talk about like how, you know, it's easy if you're embedded in this work like I am and you've been doing it for a really long time. And it, it's still easy for us to make mistakes and for us to learn. And so if you're someone who is, you know, like, hey, I want to be more inclusive, I want to, you know, be able to, to live my life in a way that includes everybody, or as many people as possible, but I don't know how to do it. And I don't have all the language, I don't have all the tools, and I don't have the experience that it's so critical to remember that you're going to make mistakes just like we do in life all the time. And Mm -hmm. you can kind of apply ideas around growth mindset to how you approach this topic as well. So that, you know, you take the shame and blame away from when you make a mistake and you just kind of grow and learn. And it's a continual practice, you know, kind of like naturopathic medicine is for me, and I'm sure you can speak to that as well. Sure. Um, so, you know, from the get-go, just take away all of the, all of the stress and all of the, 
the kind of uh, doubt that you might have about your ability to do it. And we can get into the alphabet soup. I think that is really, that's actually really refreshing or uh, helpful even for me to hear. Um, and I'm getting, I just flashbacks to, um, you know, when this earlier this year with the Black Lives Matter movement, and I'm like, I really want to show up here. I want to learn and I want to kind of show, show this, you know, on my social media platforms, but I was actually terrified. I'm like, I'm going to use the wrong hashtag or say the wrong thing. And it's really, you know, um, it just parallels that a little bit. So I, I appreciate you saying that because you're right. We all, if we can show up in a spirit of learning and growth, then we're all going to move forward better. Yeah, it always reminds me, I had this patient kind of, um, I don't know how many, like we're talking like probably 10 years ago now who uh, came into my office and was there for like the first visit and on my intake forms, you know, forever kind of, I've had uh, spaces or blank spots on my intake forms for assigned sex and gender. And, and uh, you know, this patient, she came in and she was filling out the intake form in the office in the waiting room and she was, you know, in her later 60s. Um, and she turned to me and she said, I see that you have both sex and gender here. And as a teacher of English, I know that they aren't quite the same thing, but I'm still not 100% clear on the difference or how I should fill this out. And, you know, that's the kind of uh, approach to learning that you were talking about, where it's just, mm -hmm. I don't know what the difference is, or I don't have all the answers, but I'm curious and I want to learn, you know, mm -hmm. from my side of things, um, you know, I, I've learned a lot through this process from my patients, because I used to use things on my intake forms that said preferred pronoun. And, you know, I still see that in a lot of practices. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, one day this, you know, again, is like several years ago now, but one day one of my clients came in and said, it's not my preferred pronoun. It just is my pronoun. You know, for me, I used she, her pronouns and that patient used uh, they, them pronouns and, or uses, they, they still do. Um, but it was a really important point because it's not a preference. It just is the pronoun that, that, you know, that I use or that you use or that Dr. Dave uses. And so, you know, we can kind of think through it and just be open to, to change and I think right. we're open to our minds being expanded to, to yeah. do, do things a bit differently I mean I have a preferred shoe size like but <laughs> I have a shoe size that is not my like you know so I that's an that's a good observation what um let's go to the alphabet well it's a good we'll, we'll get to the alphabet in a sec but it's it's I we it's just stuff we take for granted right like it's, yes. that's why it's like I don't think it's preferred like I just I live, I guess, a very uh, conventional sort of existence where I haven't had to think of it even like that, right? So maybe that's part of where that comes mm -hmm. from. The, yeah. 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 And I think, and we're going to come back to this, right? It's like that some of the things that, that we take for granted or we make assumptions about, whether that's just like as human beings moving through the world, if you're, if you're cisgender and, um, you know, where your gender and your sex uh, are, you know, uh, uh, the, the gender you identify with is this is aligned with the sex that you were assigned when you were born uh, is, you know, we make these assumptions. We, you know, go about our lives assuming that other people think that way. And, and the same thing does apply to, to kind of, you know, race along Black Lives Matter. And I think there's a lot of parallels uh, between stuff we're going to talk about today and issues of racism or ableism. Um, 
And the, the ways that those intersect for people, you know, can often highlight these things. But, you know, it's those uh, small things, you know, we were kind of talking about this um, before we start hit record too, was, you know, those, what are the, you know, some of the small things that, that people experience um, who, you know, may, uh, may perceive or may, may experience as discrimination and that, that are events of discrimination or stigma that they face that, you know, some of us, um, especially if we're cisgender and straight, may not even consider mm-hmm. right? or ever have to experience. You know, I think about uh, every time, you know, um, where like a, a lesbian couple with a kid is asked, you know, oh, which one of you is the mom? And, you know, that, that those things are never asked of someone who's in a different kind mm-hmm. of family arrangement. You know, it's those you know, questions that come from a place of curiosity, but are, and maybe aren't intended as harm, but have the impact of erasing somebody's or, or making invisible or pathologizing, you know, making it seem like it's abnormal. And, you know, that creates stress. Of course it does, right? If you, if, if you, uh, if you walk through the world and somebody uh, asks you a question that's like, you know, that the classic is like, oh, where are you from, right, on the race front? It's, it's a similar um, kind of, of, of questioning or, you know, that, that makes you feel excluded. And that's going to have an impact on your, on your mental health, on your physical health, and, you know, is part of, like, how you interact with space, in space with other people. For sure. So should we, um, we got a little off track because we, <laughs> we, we totally, were going to start yeah. with something that we didn't start with, but let's, let's circle back to that. And I think that was actually, I think that gives some good uh, depth and background um, ideas or things for people to think about. So yeah, let's back up to our original idea. <laughs> good call. <laughs> um, so let's go back through the alphabet. Dave, <laughs> you know, uh, I always uh, put now, you know, I haven't always done this, but I've switched to putting 2S at the beginning of the acronym because um, just to uh, acknowledge the importance of the Two-Spirit people. So 2S stands for Two-Spirit, and Two-Spirit is a term uh, that comes from in Indigenous North American um, communities. And so again, you know, to me, this is about putting forward this I- idea of, you know, the intersection of uh, how racism can impact uh, ideas around gender and sexual orientation as well. So, you know, two-spirit is a term that doesn't fit within any of the other pieces of the alphabet soup. It's specific to Indigenous communities. And isn't as well defined maybe in some ways as others because it may include uh, variations on gender identity and expression as well as sexual orientation that are specific to Indigenous communities. And as a, a non-Indigenous settler person, I, um, I can't speak to all of the variations of that, but most, most Indigenous uh, North American communities do have a history of having, you know, more than just this binary ideas of gender or of sexual orientation. And so two-spirit is a term that can encompass those. So then we have kind of the traditional piece that I think most people at this point in uh, are familiar with is like LGBT. So L for lesbian um, and G for gay, usually referring to uh, men. Uh, but sometimes includes, you know, other people of other genders as well, depending on how these words have been used by people. 
um, T for trans and, you know, transgender is the opposite. I use that term cisgender before, um, mm-hmm. where again, where someone's like sex that, that they're assigned at birth uh, is, you know, is consistent with their gender identity. Whereas trans, you know, these are like very, it's like for the, the chemistry geeks amongst us, <laughs> it means like on the opposite side, right? If you think about the arrangement of uh, atoms, but so that's that's where the the trans prefix comes from. So it uh, is for folks who you know may have been assigned one uh, gender or sex at birth, but that does not align or is opposite from the gender identity that that they uh, that they have and the or, or the gender expression that they wish to present with. Um, and sometimes trans includes like a bigger umbrella of folks, including people you know who are kind of more gender diverse overall. So people who may um, identify as non-binary, so neither uh, masculine or feminine in gender, that they may, um, you know, be, I use words like gender queer, where they shift between genders, or they feel like they're agender, so they, they you know, do not see themselves as having a gender at all. Um, and, you know, gender is something that, that identity is like that piece of how we think about ourselves. So I think that's important to, to talk about. So that, that trans term is, you know, really like almost an umbrella term and a specific term. And that's consistent with most of the alphabet. If we had all the specific terms, which I uh, include in my like querying for wellness course, I have like a handout on all the possible terms that, that people use. And I'm sure it's like, uh, I think it's six pages right now and probably could be longer. Is that what the plus um, is for? Is the that is what the plus, plus is for? Is, 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 to is like these letters do not, not are not sorts of other options. Yeah, like yeah. we're still not necessarily going to capture the like the true variety of and diversity of human mm-hmm. experience mm-hmm. Across yeah. these, um, spectrums. So where are we at? We did T. You missed B though. Oh, I did miss B. Thank you. See, this is what happens when I don't have it right in front of me. <laughs> so B is generally for bisexual. So bisexual refers to, to more about sexual orientation, you know, so who am I like romantically uh, or intimately or sexually attracted to? And, you know, bisexual is a term that usually is associated with somebody who's attracted to more than one um, gender. Um, romantically or sexually. There's other kind of newer terms like pangender, uh, which, you know, it acknowledges that there's not this like binary gender. So that person might be attracted to people of all genders. Um, mm-hmm. So that would include folks under that trans umbrella. Can um, we just pause, pause and go back yeah. to your woman with the intake form? Can you just plainly uh, um, explain the difference between, because you've mentioned um, gender and sex a couple times. So can you just go over those two terms as well? Oh, like such a great plan. Yeah, the, yeah. Just the basics of the difference between sex and gender. Yeah. yeah so sex is like, you know, it, it is that I always explain it that like sex is the thing that, you know, people talk about when a baby is born. And actually, that's how um, sex is assigned. That's the, the term that we use as assigned is like, it's like, it's, you know, it, it's, it's like a check mark on somebody's box, right? And literally, we do that all the time, we check boxes. And so um, sex is, is when we talk about it, we kind of get confused sometimes because we're not sure what we're talking about. You know, sex can be really complicated. It's biological sex, but there's, you know, does that mean like our chromosomes? Is that the XY 
uh, versus XX chromosomes, but then that doesn't include people who have all sorts of other chromosomal variations yeah. like XXY. Um, but there, that could be, you know, what kinds of hormones our bodies produce, in, you know, uh, once we hit puberty. Um, but really sex is like uh, a doctor or whoever, like the person attending the birth, maybe it's a midwife, literally picks up a baby, looks at the baby's genitals and makes a call. And that's really like how we define what's, what sex you are or what, how your sex is defined, how my sex is defined is literally somebody picked up a baby and said, it's a... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's a baby. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah. usually somebody's going to say it's a girl or a boy. And, um, and that's entirely based on the appearance of genitals. So really, like when we talk about sex, we're really talking about genital appearance. So, you know, does the does this baby's um, do, the, do their genitals look like a penis or does it look like a vulva? And, you know, when doctors aren't sure what they're looking at, uh, when, you know, when the baby is born, then, you know, that that kid might get deemed intersex. And there's a whole bunch of history and <laughs> around that. Um, but so that would be somebody who doesn't neatly fit into those boxes, usually based on genital appearance. And so then, you know, then they might go into like, what chromosomes does the person have? What hormones are they likely to produce? What organs do they have in their body, like on the inside of their uh, in, on the inside of their body, not just their genitals. Like, do they have uh, testes or do they have a uterus? Do they have ovaries? And that's, you know, kind of a more complicated way of talking about sex, but really sex is, is. Yeah. And it's, that sounds so basic, but I think a lot of people listening would have had no idea that the way things look might not match chromosomes or that there's different, there's more chromosomes than just the two that we think of as as male and female. So I like even that. Oh, just for sure. Is, um, like the awesome pot of soup that we're in, in life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like the amazingness of, of, of humanity, um, mm-hmm. you know, like we don't really talk about that. And I mean, I don't know about, uh, you know, we all kind of went to naturopathic school, uh, you know, relatively around the same time, but uh, you know, it wasn't really something that we talked about uh, through our education and certainly wasn't something that I learned before that either. But, you know, the, the data we do have and like what the statistics say is that, you know, somewhere between one and 2% of people don't actually fit neatly into those male and female boxes on, uh, on those, those check marks. And that's, sure. that's not an, it's a small amount of people, but it's also a pretty significant number of people who, you know, well, aren't going to, from a practitioner point of view, you know, that's, you know, if I see a thousand people a year, you know, or yeah. depending on, on the populations you're working with. Um, I think we've, uh, do we have any letters left, Dave? Well, I, I just want to say I already learned something from that because I was, when you, when you talked about assigned gender, I was like, well, doesn't she mean biological? But then um, I didn't want to, you know, offend or look really stupid. Maybe I do anyway, but um, yeah, biological I, I just saw, saw it as like, oh, biological sex. That's like a thing. But then I forgot, you know, we even learn, in, we do learn in school about like XXY and, you know, the the different sort of uh, even biological uh, genders that we know are out there. Because I know some people struggle with that. Um, is it biological? But this idea of being assigned a gender based on uh, like genital appearance is, I've never heard it boiled down to, to that. So I, I, I find that insightful already. 
I'm thinking back to my, tw- yeah. my 20 week ultrasound and they're like, there's the hamburger sign. It's a girl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, exactly. Right. It's, yeah. you know, I mean, so yeah, not actually when the baby's born nowadays, it's actually like on the ultrasound. 20 weeks, 20 you're weeks. determined. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or for some folks, actually, they're getting um, like those, those, uh, the, the early pregnancy tests that actually mm-hmm. look at chromosomes because they're testing for other things. Um, and they may actually get a chromosomal sex, which is different from the hamburger sign mm-hmm. <laughs> on an ultrasound and may not always match up. Um, and that's, you know, I think the, the kind of amazing, you know, the amazing thing is that mm-hmm. um, there, there isn't, it's not as simple as, uh, as, X, Y, or XX. And Mm -hmm. there's a lot more variability there uh, in in our, in human existence that we don't often talk about. And so, you know, it's it's not a a stupid question at all. It's just, you know, that, that we, the more we have these conversations, the more we, you know, understand um, and, and can think through like, oh, what if, you know, somebody did have that experience? Like, what if, you know, they uh, had parents who had that 20 week ultrasound and, and the doctor was like, yeah, you're having a girl. Um, but in the end, that baby, you know, reached puberty and didn't actually make uh, estrogen and progesterone in the ways that we think that somebody would mm-hmm. who been mm-hmm. raised as a girl. And, you know, what does that mean for that person? And how, you know, how is that teenager going to be in the world? What their experience it's, is. Cindy, this is like, I mean, I love, I love having conversations because it, it often applies to other topics. And Dave and I always talk about how the world doesn't like things that are not black or white, right? Like we like, it's simple and safe to have something, mm-hmm. you know, that's, this or that, like I'm mask or anti-mask, I'm vaccine or anti-vaccine because all of the gray stuff in the middle is scary and unknown. Mm -hmm. And so our brains, I think naturally are like, it's this or that. And I think Mm -hmm. it's great to have conversations like this because we need to be comfortable understanding that that's not how, that's not how we're built or how life is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we want to put definitions around things. We want to have an alphabet soup, right? Like, because we want to be able to, um, you know, like be able to create definitions of things and say like, this is, this is this thing and this is something else. And, you know, the world just doesn't fit neatly always into boxes. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, there is a lot more nuance to it. And that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's why there's like, terms that mean more than one thing or there's like a lot of terms or there's a lot of nuance between terms especially when we're talking about like how we see ourselves in the world or you know how uh how we think about our sexuality and our orient like our sexual orientation um well speaking of nuance and words that mean many different things can you tell me about the g in the soup because that or no not is that what we're at no q I think we're at Q. Q. In the soup. We're at the last, yeah. Yeah, because Q, Q we're to me. We're at the Z of the. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. Q to me has, has been like, uh, as, as a not very educated person in this realm, the Q to me has always been an interesting one. Can you maybe teach us a bit about uh, the, the different meanings behind that? Sure. I mean, so, so queer, you know, the Q usually stands for queer. 
And, you know, queer was a, a word historically that was used like almost like a slur for, or was used as a slur. Many of these words have been, and um, there's lots of other slurs for people in this area. Um, but it's a word that, you know, kind of got reappropriated by folks within the alphabet soup to say, you know, I'm going to wear this as a badge of strength and resiliency. And it's also a word that, you know, is, is much more, uh, you know, less defined, right? It's, it's a word that I use. If you look at my bio, I use it um, often to, to kind of um, identify myself as queer in some ways. And for me, you know, that part of that is that um, I was, I feel like I was raised in queer community. I grew up in queer community. My mother identifies as a lesbian. Um, and I use that word in that way, but it also, you know, there's this word that didn't exist when I was growing up because there were like very few kids of, uh, of, of, of queer couples. See there, I'm going to use it now. Um, mm -hmm. When I was growing up in the, the 80s and early 90s, and uh, or at least where I was in like the suburbs of Ottawa. <laughs> um, but there's a, a word that I learned, uh, you know, uh, that, that is used nowadays because there's a lot more kids growing up with queer parents um, called queer spawn, right? So it's like children of <laughs> parents who identify as like LGBTQ2S. And uh, so, that, you know, again, that's a different way that this word can be used. You know, it, it literally means like odd or different. Um, and so, it, you know, it's a way of, of saying like, you know, that, that you don't fit neatly into those boxes. So it's, it is like the most nuanced term of all, you know, as, as you pointed out, Dave. And the most inclusive, right? And the most like it, inclusive. It covers all of the soup. Yeah. It's, it's the one I turn to when I like, don't want to use the whole <laughs> yeah. acronym. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, how about we shift this conversation? We have, we have more letters. Oh, we have more letters? Mm -hmm. We have two more letters, I think. I is for intersex, which I already used. Wow, and then, see, I thought we were at the end. Okay. No. And then A uh, is, you know, either for like asexual, aromantic folks who don't uh, identify as having a sexual orientation or or being interested in sex or in romance, but also could be a gender and not having a gender. So it, it uh, or androgynous or all sorts of other <laughs> words that start with A. Now we're really okay. officially at the end. Okay. <laughs> the A is at the end of the alphabet. Um, so. Yeah, just because we're not into ticking boxes, we can also move backwards in the alphabet. Yeah, I like it. Um, can we move this conversation a bit into um, how this shows up in healthcare and wellness and the and medicine in general? Um, what what whether we're talking about wellness or naturopathic medicine or or just healthcare in general? How does this show up? Like, do you, can you give some examples of where um, some bias might come in or medical lack of medical kind of training might come in? Where does this show up? For sure. I mean, I think the most like obvious examples often, um, you know, come from situations where, you know, somebody shows up in a waiting room in, um, and they're like getting, you know, going for a, a PAP or like a pelvic exam and they have, you know, a, 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 a gender presentation. So that is that like people assume based on how they look or how they hold their body or their tone of voice, that that person is, 
um, is a man. And you know, maybe they are a, a, a trans man, but who has, still has a cervix and a uterus and they are going for a pap exam, but other people in the waiting room are uncomfortable or wondering why there's a man there or staff aren't sure why that person is there. And there's lots of, uh, I think of opportunities for people to feel like they're excluded or that they're in the wrong place. Right. And I think that the same thing can happen often um, if you think about like folks undergoing fertility uh, treatments where, you know, they maybe they're um, going to get testing done as a couple, but there are two women or two men. And, and how does that how do, how included or excluded do they feel in that waiting room or in that office? Um, and that really starts like oftentimes for people you know, there's a barrier set up from the get-go um, because they're going to an office and say they're, you know, they're, they're trying to get um, healthcare for their kid or for themselves and they're filling out forms and the forms say, you know, mom and dad. And, you know, right then and there, they're faced right. with this obvious sense that they're not, they're not included, that they don't exist. And, in the same way that other couples might exist or other parents exist or other guardians exist. And so, you know, it's, it's, it, it's harmful because it almost like it erases their existence and tells them that there's something wrong with them, which, you know, I think is, is the hardest piece when they're, you know, interacting at that first step with an, uh, mm -hmm. a healthcare situation. Um, or, you know, I think the, the other times when it comes up is these little things, right? So, you know, maybe they're in the office and they're talking about their partner and, um, you know, they're like, oh, my partner is really supportive. And the doctor makes an assumption about their partner and, you know, uses a pronoun um, you know, say uh, it's uh, a man in the office and he's talking about his partner and the doctor says, oh, you know, uh, what does she do for a living? Or, you know, you know, that's great. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad to know that you have her support. And that person then maybe their partner, if their partner uses uh, he, him pronouns or is a man, that person now has to, you know, correct their doctor. Right. So they're in a position where they have to say, actually, <laughs> you know, my 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 partner or my husband or, you know, whatever it is that they are needing to, to make a correction. And again, it, you know, creates it, it, it ruins that therapeutic relationship um, a little bit. And it's those kind of small things, you know, people call them microaggressions, um, you know, those small um, bits of ways that we you know, people can get erased or be harmed. Um, and so those are some of the, the kind of very basic barriers that get set up. Sometimes, you know, um, doc, doctors and, and naturopaths and other wellness providers, they just like may not have the knowledge or they uh, worry that they don't have the knowledge and the ability to treat um, people who, you know, are queer identified. And so that, you know, sets up like a small thing where the doctor is like nervous or lacks confidence. And that could be something that, that the other person picks up on and is like, oh, you know, am I getting treated this way because I'm being discriminated against for who I am? Um, so that's like the kind of, you know, the smaller pieces. But the reality is that, you know, we also know from, um, from lots of healthcare data that we have that people don't get the care that they should, um, that, you know, they may not get all the screening exams that they should. I've had 
lots of, you know, it happens less and less, but it still happens where I might have a woman in my office who only has sex with other women or has only uh, like, you know, in, in, in technical terms, vaginal, vaginal contacts um, in, in, in terms of sex practices. And so that, you know, and then she says, well, I've never, nobody's ever suggested I get a pap test done. And that's just incorrect information, right? And, and so um, it's unfortunate, but true that uh, lesbians and bisexual women tend to get fewer mammograms and get fewer pap tests done because their doctors aren't aware of how to approach it with them or what the guidelines really are, or, uh, or they're afraid to ask those questions in a healthcare setting. You know, sometimes... Um, and, you know, this is kind of true across the board. So there's, there's lots of different ways that these kinds of walls get put up that stop people from getting the health care that they need. And, and if that situation arises over and over in a lifetime, that's going to create massive health outcomes or, or, or worse health, health outcomes. Absolutely. You know, if it happens, you know, if it happens to you once, then that's one thing. But if it happens to you over and over again, then you might be uh, afraid to go into those offices. Or if, you know, you go into a place and you're sitting in the waiting room and another, you know, another client is making homophobic jokes or remarks or, or, or transphobic jokes and remarks or racist jokes and remarks, how are you you know, are you going to feel comfortable going back into that space the next time that you need to make an appointment? And so, you know, people delay getting care because they've had too many of those experiences or they have lost trust in the medical system. And, you know, we see that in other kinds of uh, situations as well. Yeah, it's, it's, there's other situations I was just thinking of too, that maybe some other people could relate to like step parents or, or parents of a child who, who it's not their biological child and you, you show up or whatever. And they're like, Oh, and, and you must be the dad or you must be the mom. And it's like, well, no. Um, and it, maybe some people can relate that way. Cause it's, it is that same feeling of like, oh, shit, like, I don't really, I know you're not trying to offend or anything, but it's not true. And I don't want the child to hear that or, or cause it's not true. I'm not. So mm-hmm. yeah, maybe some people could relate that way. But one, one thing I want to talk about Cindy was, um, you know, that situation where maybe someone goes, someone who's queer, let's just say, can I say queer as sort of the most encompassing of, of, of the terms or alphabet soup, um, go to the doctor and the doctor or the reception makes some sort of assumption, which is based on only norms and probability. It's not really trying to be uh, anything out of line. It's just, so there's a situation there where they say something that doesn't apply to this person because their gender or or um, wh- what have you is is not what is assumed. How do both parties react to that gracefully from both ends? So how does the how does the um, the queer person react to make it uh, as easy as possible for the uh, relationship to be okay or start on the right foot? And how does the practitioner or receptionist or whoever react to make it as to like to to make it as good as possible at that point. For sure. I mean, I think, you know, I, I think it's really important to, to address both sides of that equation. But of course, like, you know, I'm going to say that the onus is really on like the doctor or the, the receptionist um, or the like clinic owner to like train their staff so that those mistakes happen less often. Um, you know, and there's lots of like simple ways to get around that. I think, you know, a, a, a good example is that like, you know, somebody makes an assumption that somebody is a woman when really they're a man um, and, you know, maybe they use the wrong pronoun. 
um, in that instance, or they uh, ask about using the washroom and they're directed to the wrong washroom. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, there's very simple fixes from a like training staff perspective, and it's one of the things that that I work on with um, clinic owners is you know is training reception to always provide all the info. So say it's a washroom and the the person's like, hey, where's the washroom? And instead of making the assumption that this person wants a woman's washroom or this person wants a men's washroom, you know, the staff person can say the women's washroom is down the hall to the left. The men's washroom is like the third door on the right. And, you know, uh, hopefully, and, you know, we have a gender neutral washroom, you know, over, you know, on the left-hand side so that you give all of the options and include everybody in your response. Um, or that you, you know, train staff to, um, or use intake forms that, you know, prevent uh, incorrect pronouns being used when talking about, uh, say, a patient's in the waiting room and the reception wants to tell the doc, uh, the doctor, or the, the, the practitioner, you know, that, oh, so-and-so is here. Well, you know, we could say, oh, um, you know, Kara's here, they're in the waiting room. And so that you're always using a neutral pronoun if you don't know what it is. I think, you know, when those mistakes happen, just getting back to your real question, which is, you know, when those mistakes happen, I think, you know, if someone feels comfortable in that moment, the, the queer identified person to, to, to make a correction, um, or if there's some other uh, time when they can do it, you know, if they don't feel comfortable in that moment, which I think, you know, if it's happened over and over again, that might not be, uh, feel safe for them. Uh, and so, you know, if they can indicate in some way, uh, even in the moment or after the fact, hey, you know, when this happened, I felt hurt so that, you know, people realize what they're doing because, you know, most of the time people don't intend to cause harm to other people. Like we generally, you know, are are good people who are well-intentioned and want to be inclusive. And so, you know, just sending a little note, whether it's after the fact or in the moment to that person can make a big change in the way somebody uh, interacts in the future. And then for the person who's made an error, you know, say you've misgendered or someone, you've used the wrong name or the wrong pronoun or made an assumption about their gender, that, you know, apologizing, but not really like dwelling on it too much can be really important. So that you apologize, you, you know, offer to do better next time, let the person know you're gonna work on it, um, actually do that work and follow through on it, but then also, um, you know, not spend a whole bunch of time, uh, you know, talking about how horrible you feel about it, um, because then you've really centered your own experience in that in that moment. So, you know, if, if I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I can't believe that I did that, I've been working so hard, you know, I, I hate it when I do that. And then, you know, it almost feels like the person that you, you know, have have hurt, however unintentionally, is like going to try and, you know, it, provide you with empathetic empathy and care, and it really should be the reverse. So I think it's just, you know, um, taking the approach of like, hey, I'm so sorry that uh, I, I said that wrong. Uh, I'm working on it and then move on so that you have acknowledged that you made the error, but you aren't making it about you in that moment or your feelings. Okay. So where should we go next? I'm, I'm curious, can you think of other ways that this does show up, um, you know, in healthcare? And I'm curious, like just your perspective for naturopathic medicine in general, because I mean, our medicine is, individualized medicine like that's our core tenant and so you know 
you know, we treat people, we don't treat diseases, we just, we treat people, right? And I love that about our medicine. Can you talk just specifically about naturopathic medicine and how, you know, maybe we're doing well or where we have growth or learning to, to, to evolve? For sure. I mean, I think, you know, there's always room to grow for everybody. Otherwise, we wouldn't call it practice. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I think you're, you're absolutely correct, like in the sense that, you know, we do, um, you know, work with people on an individual level, and like, there is no right or wrong way to, to go about things. Um, and, and, you know, we were really focused from a, a professional philosophy on like, you know, having the patient at the center of their care and letting them, you know, and helping them to be more empowered and provide them with information and let them make their own kind of informed choices about how they're going to approach their, uh, their health and, and what treatment options they want to draw from. And so that, you know, is a natural fit, I think, for um, folks who are queer identified, because there isn't, there, there are already, there's less rigidity in terms of, you know, boxes to fit into. Um, You know, I think there's, there, there is always room to grow, but you know, the other piece about naturopathic medicine is that we're really focused on the prevention side of things. So, you know, we always talk about like, how do we prevent people? How do we, you know, prevent ill health or, or prevent disease as opposed to always constantly thinking about treating a pathology or treating something that already is there. And that, you know, brings the focus on like really like building strength and building uh, building confidence, building skill sets, uh, and building resiliency in, in managing uh, life and, and stressors so that you prevent disease. And that's really in line with like most of the research. You know, we talked about all those barriers to health for folks who are, are in the alphabet soup, and that's all of us really, um, yeah. in some way or another. And, um, and so, you know, that if, if we're talking about uh, about prevention, we talk about, you know, what are the things that help protect us from, from getting sick? And when we look at those research, you know, you can look at the research on, um, on, on lesbians and gays and, and bisexuals and trans folks. And, and you'll see that like, on the surface, you'll see all this evidence and all this research that says, oh, you know, they're more likely to suffer from depression, or they're more likely to suffer from anxiety, they're more likely to have addictions to different kinds of like substances, or they're more likely to smoke cigarettes, they're more likely to um, think about suicide or attempt suicide. And those are like really, you know, uh, valid stats, but they only tell us part of the story. They only tell us about like what the endpoint is and not about the prevention side of things. And if we look at those whole picture, the other piece of the research is that when people feel supported and they feel included and they have, you know, families that support them um, or they have friends that support them or they have chosen family that supports them, like non-biological chosen family, that they're less likely to have all those other risks and all those other conditions that I just listed. And Which, so that's, that's a huge the... point you're making. So yeah. what you're saying is <laughs> massive. That, so those risk factors are not inherent to the identity. They're inherent to the discrimination that comes as a result of it. Exactly. Yeah. So it's not about being queer identified that puts you at risk. It's actually about your experience of stigma and discrimination and even violence in the world that puts you at risk for those things. It's not, you know, being uh, 2SLGBTQIA+, it's actually about 
homophobia, transphobia, and you know that that those are the pieces that actually are going to have that impact and and harm you from a health perspective. Mm-hmm. And so it's huge, I think, for like anyone who's you know maybe you're like someone listening and you're like, well, I don't really fit into the alphabet in any kind of way that we've really talked about, other than maybe as like straight or heterosexual. Um, and I and 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 I'm cisgender, so I don't really like relate to any of these experiences. The reality is that there's probably somebody in your life who can, and providing that person with support and letting them be the person that they are is the thing that's going to prevent them from facing any of those risks more than anything else that we know about. I mean, it's, it's, it totally makes sense because all primates are social animals and they want to be part of the group. And if you don't feel part of the group for whatever reason, like if you're alone as a primate in the jungle, you will die. Right. So it's, it's, I think it's really ingrained to be, um, to feel included in in the group, uh, which leads me to ask about um, what kind of language can we use, like just everyone use, uh, to help the environment in which uh, sort of less conventional uh, combinations of gender and sex uh, exist. Like, what, how can we change our language in a way that uh, makes it a little more comfy? Because language is really important. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a there's a, a ton of ways to do this, and I, if uh, if folks want, you know, like my like I, I created a handout with uh, one of my students a couple of years ago on like uh, neutralizing your language. You can't always make it 100% neutral, but like neutralizing your language. So it's like actually a table of like instead of this word, try and use these words. My favorite example from that, and people can go to my website and uh, and sign up to get a copy of that at any time. Um, but uh, you know, the easiest thing I think is like, I'm a big fan of using the word y'all. <laughs> I'm not from the <laughs> South of the U.S., but oh my. I, I, I want to like bring it back into like, just like regular language, even in Canada that, that like, here's, this is a word that we can use. Like we can use everyone, but we could also use y'all to describe people instead of saying like, Hey guys, you know, which I still do all the time. Uh-huh. Yeah. Or, um, or, you know, like, uh, if you want to be more formal using like ladies and gentlemen, well, that we know we've already talked about this. It doesn't include everybody. And right. so that's my rationale for the use of the word y'all. I think y'all. that's the, <laughs> we need, you need a button. <laughs> you need a button. You need, you need um, it on a button. Yeah. Hey y'all. <laughs> hey y'all. Um, or, you know, hi everyone. So that, sure. you know, that's the, the, the easiest way. I think there's so many, you know, other things that I've used, even when we've been talking, you know, talking about pelvic exams instead of using the word gynecological so that you're right. focused on the, the anatomy of the body mm-hmm. instead of on a word that has gender associated with it sure. so that you, um, you can include everybody. Or partner. I think more people are, are, you know, are used to using the word partner instead of, oh, your husband or your girlfriend or your, your wife. Um, mm-hmm. That My kids invented a word because I asked about this. I, you know, they're, they're like in that early, they're tweeny, early teens. <laughs> and I was like, what do you call? Because this is a word that I was, you know, couldn't find anyone. Like, what do you call someone who's not a partner? Because partner kind of has like a seriousness to the the relationship piece. Sure. Um, 
for some people uh, that, you know, is like somebody that you, maybe you have a crush on if you're like a young teen, this is like, cause I, you know, sometimes work with younger kids in my practice who, you know, don't, don't fit neatly into boxes. And I was like, well, what do you call somebody that you have a crush on, but like maybe isn't your like, you know, you don't want to use the word special friend or like, you know, like what's the cool word? And my, uh, my two kids were like, you should call that person your Romy. It's like a romantic, you know, interest, but it's a, 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 a neutral way to talk about it. So you don't really, it's not really like identifying the gender of the person. It's like partner, but like less, uh, less serious. Yeah. The kids always have good lingo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The kids will uh, set us straight <laughs> or sure. queer as the case may be. Yes. <laughs> Actually, well, there, yeah, there's a term right there, right? Um, I'm, I'm curious. So I have a women's health focus and like that, that is my specialty in my clinic. Can you give me some ideas of where I might not have um, thought I'm not being inclusive or that right? Because I, yeah, I, can you give me some ideas on, uh, because I'm sure that I am making mistakes. For sure. I mean, I think, um, you know, one thing I've noticed that a lot of people who like focus on, uh, on women's health, um, you know, is like, uh, is using the X instead of the vowel. Um, yeah. and, you know, we see that even uh, in talking about Latinx, like people who are Latinx, um, so that you're not implying a gender when you're talking about that, that that term would include trans women in your mm -hmm. practice. It's a way of indicating that you treat, you know, sort of uh, women's health, but also trans women's health or uh, non-binary women's health um, mm -hmm. would all be kind of included in that. And then I, you I'm know, I think it is more and more actually, which is, I am yeah, seeing I'm that. seeing it. I'm seeing it a, a, a lot more recently. And I think, you know, people are thinking about how do I, how do I indicate to people that my, my practice is safe or my, my mm -hmm. clinic is safe for them to come visit. And I think that those outward facing materials and using um, different words help with that. And then, you know, really like talking about, instead of talking about, um, you know, you can talk about hormones or endogenous hormones. Those are the hormones that your body makes um, as well as, you know, exogenous hormones or hormones that we um, maybe prescribed or take on the outside that we have to like put into our bodies or onto our bodies um, right. in order to kind of achieve a certain level of hormones or, or um, a, a certain piece around our health. And then, you know, using words like pelvic exam instead of uh, gynecological exam, you know, I think there's, there's ways of talking about puberty um, that, you know, can be like most people's bodies who have a uterus will, and ovaries will um, produce estrogen uh, as part of the and estrogen and progesterone in greater amounts during puberty that like leads to, you know, breast development. Um, you know, some folks are more comfortable with the word chest over breast. And, and part of it is just asking people, like, what do you call that part of your body? Or how do you, what are the words that you use, right? Like we could use really like, as we do often in medicine, like really technical terms. Um, and then somebody will be like, oh, I don't know what that is that you're talking about. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a good example that's like not even gendered, but like, oh yeah, like collarbones, right? So if you use like the proper anatomical term for it, like a lot of people would be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so um, some of it is like, it's just education and using, you know, using the, the, the words that your patient uses and mirroring their language. I think those are, you know, some of the biggest things. Mm -hmm. And then, 
yeah, if you're a fertility based practitioner, then you can make, you know, think about ways that you talk about fertility or talk about hormones. Don't, don't always make the assumption that um, you're a person who ovulates or that, that you have uh, a partner. There's that word again. You have a partner um, at all or that you have a partner who uh, produces sperm in their body as, as like a, an assumption. How do you, um, so I, I'm like, I have devil's advocate brain all the time, so you have to forgive me. But so when you do something like, you're saying the women, so W-O-M-X-N, how yes. do you communicate that? So this is a, maybe, maybe it's a weird question, but that's how my brain works. How do you communicate to those who maybe are just like conventional, they don't really, they see that, they go, what is that? So how do you actually remain inclusive to people who are, um, not as into the uh, I don't know they don't they don't understand the alphabet soup as much like with that how do you risk how do you not risk losing communicating with sort of normal cisgendered people do you write both or how do you communicate that yeah I mean there's there's different ways and I think like you know each practitioner kind of would know or or if you're like writing to a group of friends or like a book club or whatever that you or any kind of situation where you're using that word you can approach it in two ways like if people are familiar with the x you can use the x in written you can even put an asterisk so that you explain what you mean by that or you can use the word woman with an a but then write um you know write exactly in 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 brackets like what do you mean by that so Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is something that, you know, we see, um, we're working on some signage for a clinic where they actually had uh, a gym and uh, they wanted women's only hours for women who, um, you know, for religious reasons, didn't want to be uh, in the same space uh, working out and wearing workout clothes as men. And so we use the word woman without the X, but in brackets, just put, you know, that the women includes cis women, Mm -hmm. trans women, Mm -hmm. non-binary women. And so that you're um, using words that are both familiar and, um, and, you know, you can use social media and you use your other ways of like, of of explaining what you mean so that you can clarify it for all people. And I think, you know, that's an important piece is like, is, is acknowledging that not everybody has the same language or has all the same uh, understands all the the letters in the alphabet, and so how do we make space for everybody in that way? And you're well, you're clarifying it, and then you're creating awareness to somebody who might not understand that there are other ways um, that that yeah. word um, might be interpreted. So yeah, it's it's a good. It goes back to my like sixty something year old patient who you know was like filling out the form and was like, I know that there's a difference between these, but I'm not exactly sure what it is. And, you know, it was an opportunity for me to talk to her about that too, right? So I, you know, was like, oh, for some of my, this is the difference. And for some people in my practice who see me, they're not the same, right? Um, And, you know, I've had people not understand how to fill that out. And then it's a a conversation too. I think, you know, um, it's important too for like, you know, most of us like who are cisgender or who are heterosexual walk around the world, in a way where we like don't ever have to explain those things or we don't have mm-hmm. to think about them. And, you know, it's okay. It's, it's not, it may not be comfortable and it may put us in a position where we have to ask like, what does this mean? I'm not familiar with this. 
Um, but it's, it's okay to be uncomfortable or to not know. And it, it really normalizes, I think, you know, like um, asking questions and not feeling stupid when you ask a question and, and that, you know, we're, we're all just trying to understand each other better and be better people. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great segue into, we always ask our guests at the end or closing of the uh, conversation, what's one thing you would like our listeners to leave with after our chat today? Y'all listen up. Yeah. <laughs> it. Yes. It's got to start uh, with, okay, I, y'all. <laughs> yeah, it has to start with, okay, y'all. I mean, if it weren't <laughs> for us talking about y'all over and over again, then I would say that that's the one thing. Um, but I think, you know, if there's one thing I can ask people to do is to just like think about all those times, you know, how often um, do they see themselves represented in posters or in media or on television? And um, how often are some of the people we talked about today who may uh, fit in different spots in that alphabet? You know, how much do they really know about that, of those other parts of the alphabet? And, um, and, and, and work on like empathy, right? So that we all have compassion for each other. We're like, you know, we're also in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, it's, it's hard times for a lot of people for lots of different reasons. And that if there's one thing I think that y'all, including myself can have is like compassion for ourselves and compassion for others. Yes. And just as you mentioned the pandemic that almost highlights the need, um, to understand that we all have different experiences, right? We're, we're all in this world together or in this pandemic together, and we all have different experiences and thoughts and fears and anxieties and, um, you know, good things and bad things that have come out of it. And it's okay that someone else has, it, it, it's just, it's almost kind of put a spotlight on, we're all here, we're all human, and we're all experiencing it a little differently. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it's okay to be different. Like we're not all the same. And in fact, we're probably more different than we think we are. And we're also more the same than we usually think we are. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So doc, can you direct us to some of the awesome things that you're doing? Yeah. Um, I am you know, definitely have lots of resources on my website, which is uh, cindygilbert.ca, C-Y-N-D-I-G-I-L-B-E-R-T.ca. And from there, there's that link to that neutralizing language document that I talked about. Um, There's also links to the courses that you talked about at the beginning. So I've got that course on uh, on, uh, trans primary care for naturopathic doctors or for um, other, you know, regulated health professionals. So it doesn't, you don't have to be a naturopathic doctor to to take the course. Um, But uh, there's that course. And then I have a course that's coming up really soon on um, querying wellness, which is more in line with what we were talking about today is, you know, more ideas on how to... Um, include more people in a wellness practice or in your life in general and uh, tips in terms of language, in terms of intake forms, in terms of how to set up the clinic uh, and really getting much deeper into the things we talked about today. Awesome. Any final thoughts, Dr. Dave? No, that was great. Uh, Sometime I'd I'd love to talk to Cindy about um, uh, income equality and, and uh, treating uh, the underserviced uh, 
people who have low income, but we can talk about that another time. This was like chalk block full of good stuff. So yeah. maybe we'll line you up for another talk sometime. That sounds great. Okay. That's, you know, my other big passion. Yeah, Other than forest bathing, obviously. <laughs> yeah, we just we just had a great episode on, uh, that that touched on that quite a bit. So, um, awesome. all right, thanks for joining us. Yeah, today. thank you so much, Cindy. That was super uh, enlightening. Thanks. I hope uh, I hope you it went like in flow, but still kept us on track and, uh, and was everything that you hoped it would be. It was great.